This episode is sponsored by Paleo Valley. Paleo Valley's meat sticks have been a lifesaver during this hot summer. Since they're shelf stable, I always have three Paleo Valley meat sticks in my bag at all times. It's also been perfect for my boys' lunch boxes. I love Paleo Valley's grass finished beef sticks and pasture raised turkey sticks because they support US family farmers that focus on regenerative agriculture. These meat sticks are from animals that have never been fed grains, soy, corn, or GMOs and have never been given antibiotics. The spices in these meat sticks are also 100% organic. The sticks come in five different flavors, and my favorite is the original beef stick, and my boys love the teriyaki beef sticks and the original pasture raised turkey stick. Paleo Valley's meat sticks are a perfect snack and, frankly, a great value without skimping on quality. Each stick is about $2 with our discount code, and it comes in a 10 pack bag. Make sure to support this podcast and head over to paleovalley.comslash CATG and use code CATG to get 15% off your first order. Thanks for listening and supporting the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. Laura and I are just going to be talking really candid. This is what this podcast is all about. It's one thing to say, I want to eat something else that's not meat. It's a whole other thing to say, you need to eat something else that's not meat. If you notice that you're jumping from diet to diet, at a certain point, you have to wonder. The only common denominator is me. Get outside, go for a walk, get some vitamin D, breathe some fresh air,、uh, and, and stay happy and healthy and, and take care of yourselves. Let's just have some real talk. <laughs> Welcome to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. Welcome back to Cutting Against the Grain podcast. My name is Laura Spath, and I am joined by my amazing friend and co host, Judy Cho. We just got back from the Low Carb USA Boca conference where we spent three days together, roomies,、um, <laughs> hanging out, watching some really incredible presentations.、Um, we're going to talk just in general about the low carb events, but this one in particular, it's actually a CNE accredited conference. And so a lot of nutritionists, nutritional therapy practitioners, like Uh, doctors in general attend this conference because they get those credits for it. But also, you know, the speeches are going to be a little more scientific and informative than your typical、um, low carb conference that has more of an expo、uh, attached to it. So it was a really good information. I know Judy and I kind of last minute decided to attend this.、Um, and We're going to talk through, I, th- I think it's going to take us a few weeks, probably,、um, right,、yeah. Judy, to get through all this. But we want to talk about some of our just big takeaways in this episode. And then we're going to dig down. It's just really sparked us and our interest in, in really big topics that are happening in the community right now,、um, some things that we learned. And I think there's going to be a lot of fun things and conversations that we can have about it、um, over the next few weeks. And so, You know, stay tuned for all of that. Today, we're going to try to cover some more high level stuff and explain. But, you know, this was three jam packed days full of conferences and speakers.、Um, so, yeah, we, we had a, a lot of fun and a lot of good takeaways. Yeah, it was really good on so many levels in terms of obviously, I went because as a practitioner, I wanted to just learn more and soak up more information. And then also the community aspect. I mean, I've been to several conferences at this point. Every time I walk away, it's that feeling of hope and knowing that, wow, 
food can be medicine or the right foods can be medicine. And then knowing that if we continue to grow as a community, that we can do this grassroots movement because corporate food and corporate pharma is not going to help us, um, you know, give the proper information for us to heal. And so this can actually be a true way to change the world healing with a diet. And so um, I love these things. And I love that this one was very, very focused on the speakers and just learning a lot of information. I mean, we were up from like 6.30 to 9.30 at night, and it's just constant information. It was way later than that. (laughs) That one night I went to bed around 9.30 and then you come strolling in at like 11.30 because you just kept talking the whole time. So which is, I mean, that's what it is. You just kind of get like involved in these conversations and it's so fun to really dig into a lot of this. I walk away from it so motivated, so pumped. You know, this is how I got started on my journey in general was listening to podcasts like this from everybody. And to be in a room with people who have changed my life and to be able to thank them and meet them and hear them speak was so cool. And I totally fanned out like taking pictures with people. I got a picture of myself standing between Dr. Barry and Dave Feldman. And they're both like these giants. And I just got to kind of, yeah, stand in the middle. And like, they both were so impactful on um, my life and my journey that it was just so cool to be able to say that and take a picture and I got so many selfies. (laughs) And I love that they're so down to earth, right? So we're standing with them waiting for dinner and doing that happy hour moment. And we're just talking about random scientific thoughts or community thoughts or nutritional thoughts that come up. And we just start picking each other's brains. And it's so powerful. And it's just wonderful that it's not about, well, why don't you think plants are good for us? Don't you know that meat is bad for you? Don't you know it's bad for the environment? You don't have that type of conversation. It's just figuring out, I wonder why I'm not losing like the last five pounds, or I wonder why um, for some people LDL goes up, right? It's just these interesting conversations that further your understanding and just make you think, but then also know that you're part of a community and you're in a really safe place. Yeah. One of the things I want to mention before we get too far into it is I've, we got a lot of questions just on Instagram and stuff about People asking about this conference in general, was it recorded? How can they be posted? Like, first of all, Judy and I paid for our own ticket. This is a more expensive ticket than other um, low-carb conferences because it is the CME accredited and they keep it at that level. Um, So if you're looking for a more entry-level convention, like KetoCon is coming up, so that would be a good one to attend. There's a low-carb Salt Lake happening in a few months. But, um, you know, in general, that happens. Also, this low-carb USA does an online ticket. So people for much cheaper could have watched this online live streaming. Um, So all of it was recorded and it is on their website. I do think you have to be a member or purchase an online ticket to be able to see this content. And then you also could see content from previous years, I believe. So um, just as a, as we're, we're going to talk through a lot of it now, but if you're wanting to watch the full videos or dig into some of the things that we're going to talk about, um, you can go to their website and check that out. But that's not that this is sponsored. It's just that's how much we enjoyed it. And it was yeah. something that we really wanted to to be a part of. And I think if you access their online ticket, I think it's only $99 for three days worth of um, content. You also get the content that they were presenting. So you get the PowerPoints, the PDFs, 
And uh, Doug, the founder or host, was generous enough that he allowed me to share a little bit about nutrient density. So you'll get a bonus of my graphics too in there. It kind of doesn't make sense with me uh, not speaking to it, but in general, you'll get a lot of uh, the favorite in Nutrition with Judy graphics that kind of tells the story of it's not just about going low carb, but also nutrient density and why meat is the most nutrient dense foods compared to certain plants that may have more anti-nutrients and may not be ideal even in a low carb space. Judy, just to give you an <laughs> okay. indication of like what it's like rooming with her, okay? You could cut this out, Judy, if you don't want me to share it. But she woke up in the middle of the night. This is what it's like rooming with Judy. She woke up in the middle of the night and just goes, <gasps> They didn't talk about nutrient density. I have to put together a slide. And so she sits there basically all night and doesn't sleep and like puts together all these graphics that she shared. And I wake up in the morning at like six and she's just sitting there furiously typing going like, I'm almost done. And I had to put this all together. But it's, it's just so fun to see her passion and her thought process like in real time. <laughs> Yeah, I just woke up and I felt this, oh my gosh, they are missing. There's a gap of the, and I'm sure they've had it in other conferences, but in this particular one, they talked a lot about cholesterol, a lot about insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia and how we get sick and how we need to avoid certain foods. But they didn't talk about, well, what should we eat in um, a low carb diet in terms of nutrient density? And so I guess that was running in my mind that I woke up with this passion of like, I need to send them a deck. I need to send them information as to how we need to think about nutrient density and why, why is meat nutrient dense and to just have that as a handout that these doctors and physicians and registered dietitians can share with their patients. So I was like, I got to make this even if they don't let me bring it up. Um, I'll, I'll just have the deck out there. And so yeah, I was like, I'm just going to get it done before the conference starts. And I, I tried to go back to bed, but I couldn't get that thought out of my head. It's similar to what I experienced with the liver. I got to share about vitamin A toxicity. And so right. I realized after it's kind of crazy. And I was like, Laura's going to think I'm so crazy. Um, <laughs> but I told Kevin and I was like, yeah, that's when I get passionate. It's like, I got to do it. And that's when I'm all about action. I loved it. It was so fun to be a part of. And I think it is key because, again, we're going to talk about a lot of this, but the insulin resistance and the blood sugar were huge topics yep. um, and how you can heal this weekend. But the fact that like the the nutrients in the meat itself is also part of what's healing, I think, is the part that you were really focused on. So right. um, if it, so we're going to go through some high level stuff in this episode and we're going to dig into some uh, specific topics. But if it works for you, Judy, let's just go day by day. Like I want to just kind of explain to people like what, so day one, um, Dr. Barry spoke and he talked about preventing di type two diabetes. And then, uh, Dr. Ben spoke about insulin resistance and then also exercise and how the muscle system plays in that. Um, and then we had uh, a gout presentation that was amazing, um, which I know we're going to get into, but you're going to be doing so much more work on the nutrition with Judy channel about gout in the future. And I think that's so great. Um, Brian Lenski talked about, um, kind of using CGMs to help monitor and how doctors can start using those, which was great. And then they talked a lot about salt and your skin. So, um, overall from day one, what were some like key moments and takeaways that you had, uh, that you, anything you want to share? off the top of your head? Well, I love that Dr. Barry asked if honey is an animal-based food and if it's ideal in the diet. And I think for almost every single speaker, they were opposed to consuming honey and that it's very similar 
to sugars and how it's uh, metabolized in the gut uh, still as fructose. That was good to see. I think I appreciated that there wasn't too much, I guess, discussion about PUFAs being the sole issue for everything in our diet and that sugar. I don't think anybody mentioned PUFAs the whole weekend, did they? Like it really wasn't something that any of these doctors and engineers and um, scientists really talked about. Yeah, it wasn't. It was more about if you uh, reduce your sugar load and uh, foods that stimulate insulin, that uh, you can do a lot more healing. So that was the core message. And it wasn't as much about um, the seed oils and such. Now, obviously, seed oils aren't ideal, but it wasn't that PUFAs are the reason that we are getting sick as much as um, it's being touted online these days. I don't think it's a sole reason that we are getting sick. I don't. Yeah, absolutely. I think that for the majority of people cutting to a version of a low carb keto or carnivore diet um, is really is really the healing part. That's the part that's needed. I think more than anything, what I really appreciated um, is just practical applications, especially because, you know, a lot of this conference, they talk to practitioners of like, here's how you can help your patients right. with a low carb or keto diet. And here's how people can heal themselves. And it's just very realistic, practical advice of normal people are going to have chips and salsa occasionally, or normal people are going to eat a cake on their own birthday. Like, but how can we help them find a healthy life within this? How can they use a keto life on a, on a budget? Like Dr. Lenski talks to, um, he, he works with like low income populations in California and they don't really know, you know, he says it's a cultural thing. Like how do I give up rice and tortillas and still do a low carb diet? And he has a group of uh, Latino w- women who are all working together and they all work in the same place and attend his clinics. And they're all kind of working together to be able to create this community where their low carb way of eating is helpful and is changing their life. And so how can, you know, these doctors in their practice implement things that are, that people can do in their normal life. This is not about, you know, optimal creating these like long-term uh, endurance athletes or these crazy Olympians. This is about how can normal people heal themselves and get healthy. I loved how Brian was trying to marry the real life versus ideal eating, right? So how yeah. he would talk about people wearing CGMs and figuring out what foods trigger the CGM to have this big spike. But there was one thing that he brought up that um, he also said when wearing the CGM that if you're stressed, um, it will increase your blood sugar. And he said, interestingly, it's not just that stress that makes you eat more, which obviously stress does make you eat more because you're pumping out more cortisol. And as cortisol drops, then your body's looking for more fuel in case you run out. And so therefore, it will make you crave other foods like sugary foods, which is a really quick source of energy. But he also mentioned that um, stress cannot actually block cortisol or cortisol blocks Um, the inactive T3 from becoming T4. So for some people that have thyroid issues, which I always say in my practice, it's, it's not just that you're eating, that you're not getting the carbs, that it can actually be maybe stress related or that you're under eating, which can actually cause a stress in your body. But all of these things were really interesting. And I love that he just talks so much about the real life aspect because he works with a community of people that don't have resources to everything. Um, It's not about, well, you should be eating just grass finished or you should be eating liver. It's just, let's just get off sugar, whatever that means. And, and to put the women on the CGM and then to say, figure out what is making it spike, but otherwise let's just 
eat what you can and what you enjoy, but as long as the thing doesn't go up too much. I love that it was so simple and not what we yeah. see a lot in the on the internet about fine-tuning and biohacking to perfection. Oh, exactly. And I think it was bringing awareness to them of the fact that when you eat this Chinese food with rice, yeah. it is spiking your blood sugar. And look at how your blood sugar spiked and look at how long it came back down again. And it wasn't like, what happens? I love that. And I, I it's so true. I didn't even think about this, but nobody mentioned grass-fed or grain-finished this whole weekend. Like nobody was focusing on organic. Nobody was, it's all about real life practicalness yeah. of like, how can we heal ourselves and our communities um, but yeah, it, I think it's bringing awareness to it. Do you know why, why, Laura? It's because everyone's a practitioner. So people realize that real life is never the same as um, yeah. ideal eating. And so the advocates online or influencers that don't work with anyone think that everyone can afford the grass finished. But the real life, when you actually work with patients, especially when the community is not as wealthy and a lot of people are struggling more since covid you start realizing, okay, I think that's a, you know, that's like reaching for the stars, but maybe we can have wellness for all uh, by just saying, let's cut a lot of the carbohydrates. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly it. And this is, it was such good, like some of these presentations got like really deep into the science of yeah. things and like really deep into the, into that information, but it was all about like your body and, you know, healing yourself. And it wasn't, it wasn't all this concern about the exact type of food that you're eating. It's just like what cutting out the sugar and the carbs uh, can do for you, which I love. And I think that was why it was awesome that Dr. Barry kind of started this whole weekend was because most of us find him first. Most of us came to some type of like low carb or low carb keto lifestyle by finding his YouTube videos um, and the really basic information. And I think it's this conference does a good job of balancing basic, understandable information for people like me or people who are newer than me, right? People who have never done this before. Um, and also the really detailed scientific information that's more your level, right? Some of these conversations were far above my head and I had to like ask you for clarification on some things, but to start the whole thing off by just saying like, how can you prevent type two diabetes with Dr. Barry or like, how can you reverse your type two diabetes? And it's, you know, because of the insulin resistance and um, things that he talks about, like the skin tags, right? Which yeah. is something Chris and I both used to struggle with having tons of skin tags. And that's a huge sign of insulin resistance. And so when we both went low carb and we went keto and carnivore, we reduced our insulin or reversed our insulin resistance, then all those skin tags go away. Um, but those types of signs, the discoloration on the back of your neck, right, right is something that um, my mom and Chris both definitely had. And so things to watch for, I also think that, and one big message that was talked about is like, when you do your blood work, I was personally told for years that my blood work was normal. My blood work was normal. And I was pre-diabetic and nobody told me. And I go back now and I look at my numbers and my A1C was hundred percent pre-diabetic, like right on that line between pre-diabetic and diabetic. And my doctor said, you're fine. Everything looks normal because they are just checking a box of like being in this normal range. And until you get to this ex actually diabetic when it's too late to do anything about it, there's nothing they're going to do. And then they give you a pill and they say, take this pill. And so, you know, look at your own labs and dig into the understanding of like, what does that A1C level actually represent? Where is it on the scale? Because there is this bracket of normal is not all the same, right? You can be in this normal A1C level and it doesn't mean that you're 
the same, like you and I could have normal numbers and they're not on the same scale of normal, I guess, you know. The powerful part of Barry's message was that, or Dr. Barry's message was that he's basically saying, here are some symptoms and signs and even blood work you can check prior to you becoming even diabetic. So you are able to detect it prior to. And his biggest thing was the C-peptide marker, which essentially is that when you are releasing insulin, you also release C-peptide. And so it's really hard to track insulin because it goes up and down as you eat throughout the day. So to get a really good reading of insulin, you'd almost have to check a full day and get an average and then do the same for the second day and so on and so forth. So a lot of people just go by the C-peptide since based on what I said, if your C-peptide is low, then your insulin will directly be low as well. For example, a lot of type 1 diabetics that don't produce their own insulin, their C-peptide is usually very low. And so for people that are on low-carb diets, if they've been doing it consistent, their C-peptide will be three, two, three, sometimes even below that. And so we get into the type 1 diabetic range, but that's okay because that just means that we're very insulin sensitive. A lot of times your C-peptide will be off before your blood glucose or your A1C. And A1C is just a measurement of about three months of your the sugar that's within your red blood cells. Sometimes the C-peptide and insulin will show imbalances first before it's shown in the A1C. All of those markers are good, not just your blood glucose. You don't, if you fast for a day, your blood glucose might go to beautiful numbers and that doesn't really mean much. I really appreciated that the takeaway was just get your A1C, get your C-peptide checked, and you will know if you're on the way to becoming diabetic. Yeah, I, and that's not an, uh, a test that a doctor is going to typically run. I had never heard of it before until going keto carnivore, and I had to ask my doctor specifically if I could have that ordered and have that number checked. So that was something that I definitely had to um, educate her on back in the day, and uh it helped me know like my numbers were great at the time. I don't remember off the top of my head what they were, but it was good. It was good stuff. I actually, you and I have talked like after all this, I want to know all my numbers again now. So it's like, you know, who knows? I want to, we'll see if I get that done in the next couple of months. I, I was surprised about how much I took away from the exercise uh, talk that Dr. Ben gave. And so um, where he really talked about re- reversing your insulin resistance with exercise. And I definitely know that's a big part of it. You have to kind of like burn out that glucose that's stored in your muscles and kind of uh, that's in your liver. Obviously the exercise part is the part that's the most on and off for me, mostly off uh, over the last couple of years, but you know, your muscles are a huge part of that. So it was a, it was a good motivation for me to incorporate, you know, some body weight exercises two to three times a week. It's something that I have a goal of now moving forward and, um, not feeling overwhelmed. Like I have to go hit the gym for hours every day. You know, he talked about if you don't, aren't going to be an endurance runner, why are you endurance running? Like, don't go run on a treadmill for an hour every day. If your goal is not to be an endurance runner, if you're trying to live this healthy lifestyle and have healthy muscles and healthy insulin levels, then you do need to incorporate muscles. Like it's more about building muscles and, and having strong muscles versus being able to do a bunch of cardio. So those were, I really appreciated that. Yeah. I like that Dr. Ben's exercise and I don't know all the details. I think it's some of it's like a lift to failure and just get your heart beat up. Maybe it's like hit training. I'm not entirely sure of like the nuances of his exact ex- exercise. He has regimen. a YouTube channel. Yeah. If you, I think he has a YouTube channel um, with a lot of information on okay, it. Okay. So we'll put that in the show notes, but I like that. He's like, you just need to do it 15 minutes, two times a week. And a lot of the people there are using it and um, it helps to just 
um, support in insulin sensitivity. And um, a lot of the exercise that he was talking about, it can upregulate sensitivity for lipase, which can help break down fat. And one thing he said was that um, exercise in general upregulates the release of stored fats, which we don't really think about that. We just think, okay, wait, so when I exercise, it's going to either release my glycogen. So it's related to always sugar that we're thinking about. We're either going to burn up the sugar in our muscles or we're going to catabolize our muscles. And so we always think about sugars related to our muscles, but he talked about how it can actually make our stored fats more accessible. His protocol, it sounds like a lot of the people there use it and that it's very effective. So we will link to his book and I guess his YouTube channel to see like what is his exercise. I think it is related to HIIT training and lifting, but it's another way that if your diet isn't the most perfect, uh, maybe you can include some of this exercise. And again, it's just two days a week at minimum and 15 minutes a day. Yeah, we'll see. I'll see if I can get myself <laughs> in gear and do it. And then I'll let you guys know. Um, overall, I think that, so I had posted the next um, talk was about gout and I had just posted a picture of the title and I got so many messages of people. And I, I don't think gout is talked about enough in this community, which I know before this conference, you had already started digging into uh, and trying to look at. So I think it's going to be really help. I get those questions a lot and I don't really have the answers. So it was great to, to hear him talk about it. Um, so yeah, it was, we're, I don't know if you want to share your yeah. thoughts from here and then kind of what we're going to be getting into in the future. Yeah, I have so many thoughts about this area uh, <laughs> because it's related to uric acid, fructose, and uh, and some of this might sound really foreign to you guys, but I promise we'll explain it further in a deeper dive podcast. I think it's really important the takeaway for everyone for this section should be that if you eat meat, if you eat organs consistently, and you are eating fruits or honey, you should listen to this podcast that's coming up from us. One, I have an interview on the Nutrition with Judy side with several doctors that just study fructose, and then come back to this podcast and we can dive into little nuances and um, just make it more, I guess, applicable. So the biggest thing with gout is that I had clients that were gout sufferers, they went on carnivore, they healed a lot. And then all of a sudden, they got a gout flare again. And they're like, what is going on? Maybe carnivore isn't working for me. And that's when I started digging into what causes gout. And the thing is, there's several mechanisms, but we will talk about that in the future. The interesting thing that I took away from Dr. Pete's discussion, and I'm also going to have him on my YouTube channel as well. But he talked about how you could still have a normal range of uric acid and still get a gout flare. So it's not just that your uric acid levels are low or high. I saw that in several, I guess, expert videos where people are like, I'm not worried about gout. Look at my uric acid levels are normal. But that is not the the biggest reason why people get a trigger in gout. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Big takeaways for me, though, in the conversation was, he said, one, that stearic acid can be one of the triggers. Um, and then cured meats can be an effector, meaning that you have to have all of these things in place, but then these can then be the final trigger that can actually make the gout flare. If your uric acid is high, which is a measure of a breakdown of meats. And again, I'll go into it again um, in another conversation. But it was interesting to hear that a fat, a stearic acid can actually make gout flare sometimes, and then cured meats. And I think that's related to the salt and how it affects fructose and then the uric acid and all of that. But just very interesting. Um, I don't think gout is only equals high uric acid. 
Yeah, a lot of it was, this is where Dr. Berry had asked, like, is honey somehow magical <laughs> fructose that doesn't actually cause these issues? And they were like, no, it does not, <laughs> which I think is important. And I know a lot of this talk was things that are that I haven't heard before. And so after you have this long interview on Nutrition with Judy, she's going to get on here and explain it to me and kind of break it down to me in a way that I can understand it. And hopefully, um, if some of that talk is above where your understanding of how the body works is then that would be helpful as well. So we're going to kind of get into it over the next couple of weeks for right, sure. Right. But I would just suggest I don't recommend meat only with fruit or honey. I think it's uh yeah. It's not ideal. It's kind of the worst of both situations, yep. you know. Um, they too focused mostly on um, heart, uh, like the heart in general and um, cholesterol and heart disease and all that kind of stuff. So unfortunately, uh, Dr. Tro Collegian was supposed to be there and then couldn't last minute. I He was so inspirational. He is one of the co-hosts of the Low Carb MD podcast, which if you're looking for another podcast to listen to, was a really fantastic one. Chris and I um, were on it recently, which was a true humbling experience because it helped us so much when we first started um, this way of eating back in the day. And so I was looking forward to meeting him. So that was kind of a bummer. Um, but it, it, he still gave his presentation virtually, which was still really great. And so kind of the whole day focused on that. There was a lot of heart surgeons that were on there who talked about like how um, you know, Dr. Phil Avedia wrote a book called How to Stay Off My Table, which is he's a heart surgeon who's trying to help you prevent heart disease. Yes. Um, and then a lot of stuff about overall in general. So maybe we'll do, I actually should probably get my numbers checked one more time. And then maybe we'll come back and do a cholesterol episode where like I'll share my, whatever my updated cholesterol numbers are. And um, we can talk more about it. But from most of that from day two, what are, uh, what were some of your biggest thoughts and takeaways? Um, the question I posed to Dr. Tro was that they have identified an LMHR community of people, right? So these people are pretty lean and they're uh, low carb, but they see that their LDL is going up and they have found that it's probably not an issue based on certain other circumstances. So you can't just go by LDL. You can't just go by the NMR, which is the cholesterol panel of low particles or, or, or small particles and big, big fluffy particles, but also looking at insulin, C-peptide and these other tests. But the part that was a conundrum for me, which I'm sure it's their struggle as well is, so if we understand that these LMHR people are possibly okay to have LDL being high and that's not an issue, why are they adding some of the carbohydrates to then reduce the LDL levels? Do, do you remember me so asking? So L... Yeah, yeah. So LMHR is lean mass hyper responders, which I think, unfortunately, people think is everybody, but it is, isn't it like a small percentage it's a small of, people? Group of people? Like, mm -hmm. like what does lean mass hyper responder mean? It's a very small group of people that what? Essentially, um, it's based on their cholesterol markers. So there might be a lot more. You'll have to look into the content from Dave Feldman and Siobhan Huggins. Um, but basically, their information says that there's a group of people that as they go low carb and their metabolic health gets to a good place, their LDL starts to increase, their triglycerides go way below 90. So maybe 60s, 70s, and then their LD, their HDL also goes up. I think the cutoff is about 80, but the LDL can go up to who knows what. So I've seen clients that have LDLs, you know, the average is people get concerned about 200. I don't think that's a big deal. But there's people I've seen that are in the 800,000. And so right. those people based on those markers, I believe, 
that might be the only circumstance of or the only credentials to be an LMHR, but there might be others. The question is then is are are they at risk for heart disease when their triglycerides are low, meaning that there's not a lot of floating fat in their blood or energy in their blood or not excess. And then their HDL is high, but then their LDL is very high, especially compared to the standards in standard care. I think from all their research, including with uh, Dave Feldman, they're saying that maybe the LDL being that high is not an issue. But then one thing they try to do is they still try to lower the LDL. And then they lower it by eating certain amounts of carbs. And they found that starches help to lower the LDL levels instead of taking something like statins. So my question was, if we kind of feel safe that the LDL is high, then why are we adding carbohydrates just to lower it? But I think it's because, you know, as doctors, you have this responsibility to make sure that you're giving the highest care. And I think it's kind of concerning for them to just keep the LDL high. Right. It was really interesting just in general to hear all these different heart doctors and engineers talking about how useless statins are. Right. And like, maybe I wasn't, I forget the exact number. It was like one out of 10 people actually should like, could benefit from them. It like was one out of a hundred. Oh, okay. See, yeah, I, I almost said that. And then I was like, you're probably exaggerating, Laura. So that's good. You're right. No, it's a hun- one out of a hundred. So like if a hundred people took a statin, only one person would see positive benefits from it. Right. And there's actually so many negative things that can come about it that it's just, I mean, all of these really well, you know, established heart surgeons and doctors we're talking about, don't take that. And there's, you need to adjust your cholesterol in a different way or, you know, understand your ratios. I was so glad that we got to talk to Dave Feldman before dinner that night. Um, for those of you that don't know, he does, he's like an engineer who does all these different experiments and um, really is a really powerful force in this community. But he has a website called cholesterolcode.com. And he really started all of this understanding of cholesterol with somebody who's on like a high fat carnivore diet. Um, he has a calculator that's on there where you can put in your cholesterol numbers and it kind of spits out a risk factor essentially. And then I guess that calculator has been down for a while, but he promised us he would put it back up again uh, with a little bit of a disclaimer for his own protection, but go to cholesterolcode.com and you can put in your numbers. But the biggest concerns that I've realized and, and these doctors reiterated is the high triglycerides is the issue. You know, we're, we're not concerned with total cholesterol or the high LDL and in a lot of ways, maybe a positive factor, especially for women. Um, but we have to keep an eye on those triglycerides and kind of the ratio of what you have is, is really the most important thing to look at. So, um, so much deep information, but those were, was kind of, uh, really helpful for me to understand when I was looking at my own cholesterol numbers, because your own doctor only cares if you're under 200. Um, and it's really unfortunate that that's the message that people hear. Yeah. If you're worried about your cholesterol markers, the best test to do is the NMR test where you can also get the small particle numbers as well as the large particle. So then you can see, well, um, of the cholesterol, what is um, the types that you have, and that can be a risk. And then obviously, like we said, get your C peptide, your, ins- um, your insulin, your A1C, and those other markers, because someone posed a question and the doctor said, it's never one marker that you should be worried about. It's right. in context, knowing the person, seeing them in person, telling their journey, and then understanding in context, 
is this a risk profile based on everything you know about this person? And that's the thing that gets missed a lot of times on social media when someone's like, oh my gosh, I'm so happy my blood marker is 95. And people are like, whoa, that's still a high blood glucose. But it really depends, right? If you eat just meat only carnivore, your blood sugar is going to go up and that may be okay. Um, If you're ketogenic, it might be an issue. And where was this person's markers before, right? Were they diabetic before and were they always in the 130s on average? All of this stuff makes, um, makes an impact. And I love that they were so nuanced about this stuff in this, um, in this conference. Yeah. And well, it was really cool too. Um, Dr. Arthur Agustin spoke and he, I didn't know this before I got there, but he's the doctor who invented the um, coronary calcium test or score in your, um, so you can measure like the calcium buildup in your arteries, which I know carnivores use a lot. And I've heard talked a lot about in this space. And so I've actually talked to some experts in this field and my doctor about if I should get that done. And obviously the thought is that since I'm young, um, it's definitely not something that needs to get done. I think Sean Baker does his obviously because partly because of his age and also just to show people about it. But I think they won't even do it for me since I'm under 50. Um, But if you are older, if you've been doing this way of eating, if you want to know that is a good indicator of what kind of calcium in your arteries uh, do you have built up. But like Judy said, it encompasses the entire big picture. If you're somebody who's concerned about heart disease in general, let alone on a carnivore diet, you know, looking at the big picture and things like that calcium score um, are really helpful. But he was so smart. Yeah, I love Dr. Agustin. I love his humor and how real yes. he is as a person, right? You know how he would talk about like, the you, you would never think that the person that created the CAC score would talk about his struggles with like a pie, right? It was so interesting to see that. And he's just like funny. And um, I asked him to come on the Nutrition with Judy podcast. So he said he'll come. But I'm, I love that he would say, even though he was the creator of the, the Agustin score, the calcium score, that he was saying it's it has to be in context though, right? So it can't just be that you're only looking at that score. And as long as that score is closer to zero, then you're good because he brings up that it's really trying to understand at a, uh, a spot in time where, how much calcium buildup do you have in your arteries? And from there, it's not about lowering that number, but then seeing that there's no more further growth. And so he even said something like, it doesn't make sense to really check every year, but maybe every five years to kind of get a pulse on, are you getting new plaque? And the goal is with this test is understand where you start are starting and that you don't want to get any more. But for him, I think he said that it's not, he hasn't seen it too often where the CAC score will go down, but rather right. the goal is that it doesn't go up. And oftentimes the biggest thing is by lowering your carbohydrate consumption. Yeah. I think that's such a good point too, that you mentioned, he told some funny stories about how like, you know, he got up in the middle of the night and like ate an entire pie just because it was in the house. And there's so many people who we consider experts who I think we put too much pressure on them for perfection. And we sometimes forget that they're human. And it was a really good time to like meet real people and hear their speeches and presentations, but then talk to them on a human level I got a pretty unfortunate comment when I posted some pictures of this uh, conference on my Instagram. I got an unfortunate comment from somebody that was like, some of these experts are kind of chunky. What's wrong with that? Like, I think we've, and I just commented back and reminded that like, just because we know the information doesn't make it any easier to implement. And that makes, it gives me grace in some ways. And it should make people feel better that 
I, I, th- I think it does make you feel better. It's like, it's not about knowing the information. Otherwise we would all read a book and we would be able to know everything. I can't read a book about tennis and become this expert tennis player. Um, it's about actually putting those things into practice and doing and living the information but it also doesn't make us not human. And it's okay to have struggles. Even people who are experts in this field are still having struggles. It, first of all, doesn't make the information any less valid. Yes. doesn't make these techniques and these things any less valid or make this any less healthy. It just means that we're all human and that we're all going to struggle from time to time, no matter how many followers you have or how many books you've written or how many degrees you have. I mean, every single, there was at least one doctor, one presenter every single day that talked about their struggles with their relationship with food. So that they they weren't saying that they had an eating disorder, but that if there was enough sugar in the house that they would consume it. And so they needed to abstain from it. And then the other thing was just, they would always talk about, you have to know where you are, you have to know who you are, and you have to know your boundaries. And there is just, it, it was just so refreshing to see that because this is real life. And, you know, if we all understood that keto and carnivore and meat-based uh, foods are the most nutrient-dense, we all understand that at this point, especially people listening to this, then why isn't so? Why isn't it so easy to implement? It's because real life comes in, um, our cravings come in, uh, we are in one of the most stressful times of our lifetimes. And that's when sugar looks a little bit appealing, right? When what someone, one of the doctors said, when they get really stressed, their first thought is I'm going to drive to a fast food restaurant. It's, it was humbling to see that these real practitioners are sharing that they have more grace for their patients because they understand the struggle and that it's very real and that it might be a battle for the rest of your life. But I do think we should all identify that and work on it. Now, that doesn't mean to just coddle that and say, okay, so if I fall down once in a while, it's out of my hands. I think we should always take ownership. But it's also understanding that, hey, there might be a practitioner that's speaking and sharing and they might not be at the ideal weight you think they should be. But that doesn't mean that their information or their content or their wisdom is not real. And we should try to like, you know, worry about yourself. Right. And refrain (laughs) from refrain from judgment in that case. You know, I think I think, like I said, we put so much pressure on people in that regard um, when when we're all just human. And I also think that like this image that like people are perfect and you can be on this diet for a certain number of months or years, or you're a certain type of strictness for a a period of time. And then all of a sudden things get easier. And that's just not true. And I I think some people like to present that fact, but you know, I'll go through months where I'm feeling super strong and super great, but that doesn't mean that that's going to continue forever. And I still have to check myself. Like no matter, there's no procedure you can have done or pill you can take or program you can follow. That's going to make this easier forever. It's, it's a daily thing for so many of us. I mean, it will always be a daily thing. And I think that that's just important to realize. And I think when you take away the expectation that like someday I'm going to wake up and this is all going to be easy. It actually does get easier when you stop waiting for that moment for like everything to feel fixed. And you realize that this is the way that it is. And I can live within this and have a healthy, happy life within this. Like I got to work with my challenges, not expect them to wake up one day and be over. Because when I kept waiting to wake up one day and for things to be perfect and easy, I would get so upset and frustrated sometimes when they weren't. And it was just really overwhelming. And I had a lot of grief around that. And when you kind of just learn to work with it, 
it does get a lot easier. Yeah. And the only thing I would also bring up is the flip side of all the people that look perfect or that look like a model. Um, it's, we don't know their story. We don't know their journey. And so even with that, that doesn't mean that just because they look that great, that they have the solution. We don't know what people do behind closed doors. What I will tell you is as a practitioner and somebody that's also online, trust me, I get messages from people that are even in the space that still struggle, but outwardly they don't represent to anyone that they struggle. And that could be clients, that could be influencers, like everyone has their struggles. And I think if we all just had a little bit of grace for every single person, then maybe we would really share a little bit more. But until we have that, people are always going to feel like imposter syndrome. And so they're going to just put their best face forward. But the reality is, guys, we are human and it is normal to make mistakes because that is how we learn and that is how we grow. Yeah. I think that one of the highlights of this weekend was a presentation that Michelle Hearn did. And she is a dietitian. Um, She has a book called The Dietitian's Dilemma, which you should definitely check out. And she's on Instagram. I think it's run, uh, eat, meet, run, repeat and on Instagram. Um, And she gave this really incredible and moving presentation about uh, anorexia and how we treat uh, people with eating disorders in facilities. And, you know, rather than expecting, you know, using a low carb approach, she talked about like using a low carb approach for that. But, you know, this cycle of the need to be thin. And also, I mean, it brought a lot of awareness to me as somebody who has, you know, been on the other side of things and hasn't, uh, has not a lot of understanding of somebody who struggles with anorexia, but you know, these are women, she shared personal stories from herself and also two other women. And they're women who like sometimes have kids and are grown adults and are well, it's not, this is not a teenager disease always, and it can be, and it's a huge problem among teenage girls, especially now. Um, and she talked about really just this devastating impact of suicide on young girls and especially young girls with anorexia. But this is not something that you just grow out of. You have to heal from it. And there are some really amazing grown women who have families who still struggle with this and end up in facilities and the treatment that's done for them, right? Essentially, they're given this liquid of sugar and soy and corn to try to heal them. And, you know, the mindset and food approach um, that is forced upon them. I know Judy and I talked about that a lot with her experience, but make sure you check out Michelle and her. her book, especially because in a hospital situation as a dietitian, she is required to speak to the nutritional guidelines that the government gives out. She actually was suspended from her job for telling people on the side that like you should eat a low carb diet and you should eat more meat. And that is not what the government says she's allowed to talk about. And she was suspended from her job. And so, um, support her buy her book on Amazon, but in general, you know, it's, we're talking to people with disorders by trying to force them to be a different disorder or try to force them to be moderators rather than giving them this food that's so healing and nutrient dense. I struggle at those facilities myself. And when you're telling like a sugar addict or somebody that's so scared of becoming fat, so they limit all fats, which then affects your brain and mental health because 60% of your brain is cholesterol. But they give these people carbohydrates and until you're able to uh, consume a cupcake or consume sugar in all different forms, then you're not healed. And so it's the wrong approach when you're trying to heal somebody 
that is honestly scared of food. And then when you're inundating their body with sugar produces anxiety. And I remember after every single meal, I'd have these struggles of, should I go binge or should I go to the bathroom or, and what is this pizza doing in my system? But that's the kind of food they would feed us. It would be microwave pizzas and just foods that are less than ideal, but you could be, you could choose to be vegan and they would remove all meat for you. But you're not allowed to tell them all you want to eat is low carb or you, you, you couldn't tell them, I don't want to eat sugar, disorder. right? You cannot, I don't want to eat sugar is considered an eating disorder. Absolutely. Yeah. It's crazy. So huge. I mean, there's so much work that needs to be done and that kind of transitions into like what we feed people in hospitals and what we feed our kids in schools. And there's just so much work that needs to be done in, in the guidelines. And that's why the guidelines matter because people, when they're, they're most vulnerable, but people in the old age homes, the kids in schools, people are in facilities, people that are in hospitals. Yeah. I can eat whatever I want and the guidelines don't impact me, Laura's bath. Right. But all of those vulnerable people that I just mentioned are forced to eat by the guidelines and it is literally killing them. Yeah, schools, jails, hospitals, they follow the dietary guidelines. And can you imagine what it's doing to the society? Um, Okay, cool. So let's go over day three and then as the same high level. And then we will, um, we're going to have to, this is going to be like, there's so many good topics. Next couple of times, we're going to dig into some of these individually. But I think day three of overall was my favorite. Um, Siobhan Huggins is a really brilliant, like she, she always says like, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a scientist, but she's so brilliant. She works with Dave Feldman as a researcher, right. And as a, um, somebody who does all kinds of, uh, of hacking on this and she addressed lipedema, which I think is another topic that is not really addressed in this community. I had no idea really just how prevalent it is. And, um, you know, it's, she said one in nine women have lipedema. And a lot of times people just think it's obesity and they just think you're hippie. And we kind of joked around at dinner that night that like they make songs about apple bottom jeans and I like big butts. And these are, you know, people with lipedema. And you also don't realize that the fat in lipedema, I didn't know this until her presentation is so different than the fat that I personally would carry as, as somebody who's just an obese person who doesn't have lipedema. She actually walked around during one of the breaks and like walked up to all the doctors in the room and held her arm out and said, feel my fat because <laughs> you can feel the lumpy texture of it. And it's almost like this hard granular texture of the fat that's in her arm One of the doctors actually reached out to her yesterday and said, I already diagnosed somebody with lipedema. This is a patient that's been a patient of mine for four years, and I never thought to look for lipedema. He's like, I felt her arm. It felt just like yours. And we now are diagnosing her with lipedema because of the awareness that this presentation brought on. And I think that even doctors don't understand the full extent of like what lipedema is. And she really dove into that. The other thing that she mentioned is that I do fasting to get rid of my body fat. And I'm the biggest proponent. I talk about fasting for body fat. Your body can't necessarily access the fat in lipedema because it's more fibroids. It's not like energy fat. It's a very different kind of fat. And so when she personally is trying to do a lot of fasting, she gets very weak and she can't go for a long period of time, even though she has you know, um, lipedema, her body can't access that fat for energy use. And so it's a very interesting presentation in a way that I hadn't really thought about it before. And I think a lot of women struggle with that. Um, and she did some really amazing awareness and then talking about how like a keto diet or a high fat carnivore diet uh, can be really beneficial for that. I loved how 
and this is a community aspect, but I loved how Dave Feldman, who has been working with her for many, many years, and they're obviously very close and they do a lot of the biohacks or research together, and how he started and opened up the conference for her, and how even though he wasn't a speaker, he attended when he's so busy. And it just shows the power of community. And when you find like-minded people that eat this way, that can support you. And it was very heartwarming to see that as well. Yeah, it was so much like friendship that's in this room and like among the speakers and the people that attended. It was really great. Um, The other I mean, this is like day three morning was crazy. So uh, Amber O'Hearn, who's just like kind of like the mother of this whole community or like the one of the, you know, huge proponents for it talked about sleep and, and using keto diets for sleep, which is I still feel like the one piece of my life and journey that I don't have worked out where I just can't find myself getting consistent sleep long term. Um, and things are kind of a mess. And then, um, so that, and also just the link between like getting decent sleep and satiety. The cool thing about that ended up being the discussion that her and Dr. Barry had during the Q and a about like second sleep or, you know, uh, a lot of like ancestral man used to like sleep for a few hours, wake up in the middle of the night and do a bunch of things and then go back and sleep. They, you know, sleeping in these like four hour blocks versus trying to force your body to get eight hours of sleep all in one time, um, was a really interesting, I had not something I've looked into before. I, I don't think I could do that with my life and my schedule, but it's just so interesting to think about. Yeah. I tell my clients all the time that if they want to take a nap during the day and they have the ability to, they should absolutely do it. Of course, if it impacts their sleep at night, then don't do it. But if they are not having the best sleep at night, then try a nap in during the day because essentially we're trying to go through all the sleep cycles. And if you can still get a nap in and it helps you um, go through some of that, then it will still be very beneficial. There's a lot of cultures that in the middle of the day, they have break where they all go and take a nap. So I think sleep is important. Well, so there was a study that she showed that showed that when the siestas went away, where people in South American countries were taking those naps in the middle of the day, when those kind of ended as a cultural norm, the health, uh, you know, decreased or people got a lot unhealthier. And so there's something about like taking that nap. I love naps. (laughs) I love that. Um, um, What would our children do, right? So if our kids are cranky in the middle of the day, we know that they need a nap because they're probably tired. So all of those cues where, or when a child is cranky, maybe their blood sugar is low and they probably shouldn't be going through that. But let's assuming that they're eating the standard American diet. But all of these symptoms are signs that they need something in the same way. If you feel tired during the afternoon, if you can take a nap, it's probably a good idea. Your body is saying, hey, I'm tired. And I think you should close your eyes a bit. So just like we think of ancestral eating, I think we should think of how do babies eat? You know, if you think about a newborn, they eat for the period they're awake, and then they sleep for a very long time at night, and they are in ketosis. And all of these things are normal, and they're not eating excess vitamin C through breast milk or formula. I think it's really smart to actually consider what would children do too in this situation, right? Maybe children need a laugh, maybe children need to go outside and get some sun. All of these things, I think also in tandem with ancestral eating would be ideal to think about. Yeah. I look at my kids and if they have too much screen time, they're just like cranky and emotional. And yet, how am I doing that? I'm on my computer all day for work. I'm on my phone for social media. My kids call it my zombie phone. Like, you know, but I have to separate that and put that down in the same way that like things like that affects, it affects their sleep too. 
You know, if we've been on vacation and traveling a lot and they have watched too much TV, well, I, I travel every week and I'm constantly all over. I'm constantly changing time zones and terrible hotel pillows and I'm watching TV on the plane. And then yet I expect my sleep to be the same. You know, that's such a good point. I hadn't thought of, uh, when you talk about that, cause I see how those things affect my kids, but like, I'm not acknowledging the fact that they're helping, that they're probably affecting me as well. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, Okay, so Dr. Sai was talked, which ended up being some dun, dun, drama. Dun. <laughs> um, this is probably going to be like a whole topic for another podcast. I want to talk about it briefly right now. We're going to get into it. We're going to have him on. We're not going to talk about this because I don't want to talk about it. Um, but <laughs> so Dr. Sai was talked about insulin and insulin on carnivores. And he talked about in his talk. So just that there's a very small group of people in this community who have been carnivore for a very long time. They started out as obese and unhealthy and they got themselves down to be very good and, and, and healthy and had great markers. Well, then over time, after you've been, uh, you know, carnivore for a long time and consistent the entire time for many years, some people are then seeing their insulin go low, their triglycerides go up, and then just like other markers that are kind of getting out of whack. And so uh, or his hypothesis is that those people are almost making themselves too like insulin suppressant over time. And they need to do some different things to, um, to create some insulin spikes that will then keep them be able to make insulin. And they don't turn into like type one diabetics, essentially, or people who can't make insulin. And so he kind of suggested some things that he thinks might help with that, which is like carb cycling or eating lean, uh, like very lean, I think leaner than anybody would be comfortable with like 20% fat, which would be, you know, be able to spike those things. And so he also suggested a couple other things we're going to get into. My point is, and why I don't like talking about it is that population of people is so, so, so tiny that I, Judy can tell me if he's right or wrong. I don't know that. But when he's talking about somebody should carb cycle, he's talking about this like very tiny percentage of people. And I think most people are not in a place where they're ready for that. Most people are still unhealthy, still have weight to lose, still metabolically damaged and still trying to figure out how to be consistent. And they hear somebody like Dr. Sai was saying, like, you need to carb cycle. And they're going to think that that means I can have a donut every two days. And then they go, I would go off the rails. And in a conversation that we had with him in the hall, he admitted that if he tried to add some carbs into his diet, he would go off the rails and binge and not be able to control himself just like I would. And so it's just a hard message to talk about. And like, how necessary is it in a big platform like this when, you know, so he got obviously got a lot of pushback from the long-term carnivores in the room, like Dave Feldman and Amber O'Hearn and Siobhan Huggins and obviously myself and Judy, who, who are questioning the science of it versus the methods. Like, I just can't imagine me trying to implement some carbs. So maybe that was longer than needed. To his point, he brings up that you can do instead of doing the carbs to increase or to stimulate the insulin, then you could just use really lean protein. And then through gluconeogenesis, without fat as energy, then your body will produce um, glucose or glycogen and then um, insulin that way too. And so he's saying for himself, he can't do the carbs because he can't tolerate carbs. And so he will do the really lean days to then um, be able to stimulate that gluconeogenesis. Like you said, it's a very select few people because 
essentially you have to be healed from all metabolic syndrome. So you have lost all your weight, you're maybe even a bit on the thinner side or too thin side, and then your metabolic rate markers are all good. So your C-peptide, insulin, A1C, um, all your cholesterol markers, everything looks good. And then all of a sudden your markers are kind of going in a different direction. And the concern is why. He stipulates that Essentially, your body gets super, super fat adapted where it no longer wants any bit of glucose in the cells. And so even if you're eating meat with like a fatty ribeye with a little bit of butter, um, any of the gluconeogenesis from the meat, your body's like, nope, I don't need that um, sugar from the meat. And so it'll send it to the liver then and the liver will then have to um, turn it into fatty acid um, energy, which is triglycerides. So the biggest concern he sees is that the triglycerides are going up. Now, I haven't collected all the data from my clients per se because I haven't done this mapping and I don't really have the time to do that. But one, I don't have many clients that have fully healed everything and now they're just trying to maximize or maintain their weight. Most of my clients, if their triglycerides are going up, is because they're still a little overweight. They're still struggling on this diet. They're still going back and forth with the carbohydrates. And so there is not a lot of my population. I do have some, but I don't have a lot of the population where they're even in that bucket of what he's talking about. He is saying that doing a high fat carnivore diet is ideal in the beginning, but later down the road, as you have healed, and as you are thin, and as everything is working, take an eye on your blood work. And if like, let's say your triglycerides are going up, you may have to change the way you're eating into incorporating either a little bit of carbs, or um, adding very, very lean protein days, because the essential goal is to stimulate gluconeogenesis enough to stimulate insulin to rise so that then all of the triglyceride markers and such will go down. And this is where I talk with him a lot because I wasn't on the same page with him. Again, for most of my clients where their triglycerides go up, they are a little bit and I think the other marker was creatinine, which is related to that uric acid cycle. And that part I fully disagree with him because there's so many mechanisms we're not talking about. The concern I have with him bringing this up is it's great for a biohacker, right? So if you are thin now and your triglycerides are going up or your markers are going the wrong way, maybe you have to do something different with your diet. And I would always recommend that with my clients as well. If something's not working, you got to find what's broken. But for the majority of Americans that are eating this way or that are following this diet, they are not in that select group of people that Dr. Saivas is talking about. And so what it'll end up doing, though, is it will either give one a justification to people to then carb cycle or have really lean days to hopefully lose weight. Or two, it'll tell people, oh, my gosh, I can't do this diet long term. It is actually dangerous. And for Amber and myself, we strongly disagree with that. You may not need to add like three tablespoons of butter or something as you may have in the very beginning of a carnivore diet, but a high fat, like eating ribeyes often is still sound in my opinion, even after two years or even after becoming metabolically healthy. Now, again, it's just time will tell. And it's interesting too, like trying to have conversations about it in this space. Like obviously people are tied to their information or whatever, but when people preface this information with like, well, don't be dogmatic. Like this is where I hate that word dogmatic because it's like, well, I can disagree with you, but it doesn't mean I'm dogmatic about what I believe. We just disagree. And so it's interesting for people that are for listening, they can kind of gather all the information and then they have to figure out what they're going to, what's going to work for them. But in the same way, like just saying like, 
yeah, I don't agree. It doesn't mean that you're being dogmatic saying people have to be this specific way of carnivore. It's just saying that, that I don't agree. So it's, or, you know, if they're not open-minded to the fact that they might be wrong as well is also a problem. So I think this whole topic, um, we're going to get into likely on a future episode and he's going to be joining us, uh, in the future where I think we're going to focus more on just like, you know, carb addiction. He was a huge impactor for me. And I think most people obviously know him as the carb addiction doctor. Um, three years ago, I first heard his podcast where he talked about those and we reference him a lot. So, so much valuable information. Um, we can agree to disagree and we'll continue to dig into the information, um, that's given there. And hopefully I'm just hoping that doesn't throw a lot of people off track. Like you said, there's always going to be gray area things. So if, Ever people have a black or white suggestion or reason right. or solution, there's normally a lot of gray. For example, he brought up that creatinine marker going up. Well, if you become hypothyroid, your uric acid, your creatinine can get imbalanced. So a lot of these people we mentioned are very thin. And if they were at one point obese, and when we're saying thin, they're very thin, very, very, very thin. So what if they're underlying hypothyroid and they don't realize that because they've lost too much weight and if they're feeling cold all the time and they're they're losing a little bit of hair, maybe it's that they're actually hypothyroid and then some things and their metabolism isn't working that way. There's always nuance with things that happen and I wasn't on the same page with him, especially with the, especially because I can't see his blood work because the way that he came to his resolution was with his patients and because of HIPAA, he can't show his data set, but I would love to see right. it. And it's interesting too, that why are we kind of counting some of those same measurements, but those measurements are created in a normal range for people who eat a standard American diet. And we're so open-minded when it comes to cholesterol numbers to or say like, yeah, and all those things to say that we don't need a standard American diet. So we can't really compare those same normal ranges with thyroid and cholesterol. But why can we not do the same thing when it comes to this? So it's, it's an interesting thing. I hope it doesn't throw people off. Um, and it's definitely going to be it's going to be what people are talking about very soon. It's because he's starting to share it more and more. Uh, and it's just I'm hoping that it's not the next big trend of everybody like extremely restricting living off of chicken breasts and egg whites, which is what he has some people do. And I also hope we don't all of a sudden have everybody talking about carb cycling. So stay tuned for, for how that goes. Um, in general, I know this is, uh, we're kind of out of time for today, but leave us a review. We actually are behind on reading reviews, Judy. So next time we need to start with some reviews because there's good questions in there based on all the things that we kind of touched on today, leave us a review and let us know which of these topics you want us to dive into more in the future. Um, and we're going to be planning out some future episodes. We just got in some things we didn't even talk about today, but just some good ideas for conversations that we need to have moving forward. Um, and I'm excited to do that. And this is just, just kind of be around community, go to a meetup, go plan one in your area, meet people that uh, are like-minded and it really kind of just helps motivate you, inspire you, and more than anything helps keep you on track and gives you some confidence in the way that you're eating. The one thing I took away from the conference is that everyone talked about hyperinsulinemia or what we call insulin resistance. If we have excess insulin, that is what stems a lot of our metabolic syndrome and our illnesses. And they talked about so many of the nuances of what hyperinsulinemia can do in your body. When we think about that, a lot of times the biggest thing that triggers insulin to skyrocket is sugars. It's carbohydrates. 
at a low carb conference, it absolutely makes sense why they would talk about high insulin levels, but we can do a lot of healing just by reducing a lot of the carbohydrates. We can talk about nutrient density as like the stage two of eating low carb, but it's that simple. A lot of times heart disease and other illnesses and even autoimmune can be related to too much insulin. They talked about how people not getting pregnant, having fibroids, cystic fibrosis, um, ovarian cancers can all be related back hyperinsulinemia. The big takeaway I hope that all of you guys have with this is that if we reduce the carbohydrate count, that we can actually start to reduce the levels of insulin that are constantly being produced in our body and that is causing illness because high insulin then causes other things to turn off or shut down or get broken. I want to leave you guys with this one story that Dr. Phil Ovedia brought up um, about why he, you know, as a cardiac surgeon makes a lot of money, but why did he switch over to now becoming an advocate of low carb? He says that in his book, he starts out with a 40-year-old patient that And this story really teared me up. But he said that this mom, they worked on her for about, I don't know, was it 18 hours? Yeah. And um, she had some really bad heart issues and they were working on her for 18 hours. And she, again, she's only 40 years old. And at the end of the day, they couldn't save her. And she, he felt like we're doing some, sorry, we're doing something wrong that's like causing our communities and our patients to get sick. And we have to change this because she had all her life in front of her, but she was taught the wrong ways to eat and that has gotten her sick and she lost her life from it. And that was the last one person that for him was a trigger to change his advocacy and no longer be a you know cardiac surgeon in that way. And so we have to think about stories like that and how many loved ones we've lost way too soon because we were just eating the wrong way and that we were educated the wrong way. And this is such a simple way that if we just were to reduce carbs and start eating just whole foods, whole foods that are more nutrient dense, that we can actually live our full lives and live the lives that we can with our loved ones. And that's the message that we need to try to share with the masses and with the world and and doing things like changing the guidelines, these big things, and not focus so much on this nuance, you know, arguments within the community, but really trying to um, just to try to get people to understand that for most people, they can, you know, cure themselves and reverse their diseases and heal themselves and live long, happy lives by eliminating the sugars and reducing carbohydrates. Yeah. And one way we can do that is by voting with our dollars. And so the less yeah. that we buy from these processed giants of junk food, the less that they know that, I mean, the more they know that we don't want these foods. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks guys for listening today. We hope this was helpful and let us know which uh, of these topics you want us to hear next time, but we'll talk to you soon. Take care guys. Thanks for tuning in to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share and leave us a review and leave any comments and questions on Apple Podcasts. We will read and answer your questions and comments on an upcoming podcast episode. This also helps us to share our real talk with more community members. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nutrition with Judy, on all podcast channels. You can also follow my content on Nutrition with Judy's Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find Carnivore Cure in paperback, ebook, and audio on Amazon. I also have a blog post and weekly newsletter with nutrition and wellness updates. You can sign up at nutritionwithjudy.com. You can find Laura on Instagram at Laura East Bath. 
You can follow along on her daily stories and see some of her funny skits. You can also find Laura on her YouTube channel where she shares tips on living a meat-based lifestyle. If you're wondering how much meat to eat in a day, week, or month, Laura has you covered. She also shares how to make a perfect sear on a steak and how extended fasting looks like in real life. You can find her YouTube channel by searching Laura's Bath. Thanks again for listening to the Cutting Against the Grain podcast. And remember, make sure to cut against the grain. <laughs>